Hello, and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Duncan Lamont. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much, and thank you for everyone who is listening to us live today or uh, on catch-up on the podcast. Um, I'm very grateful today to Paul Granger for joining me to discuss their views on uh, fixed income markets in particular. So if we think about where we are right now compared with a month ago, around about Christmas time, it feels like markets have started the year in a, in a more of an upbeat mood. Um, the fourth quarter was obviously pretty tough. And if we look at equities, US, Eurozone, emerging market equities, all up between 6 and 7% so far in January. Japan also doing okay, up around 5%. Only the UK really struggling, um, only up just over 1%. Uh, generally positive environment for risk assets in general. So we've had credit spreads declining. High yield spreads last year and, um, increased by about 228 basis points between September and early January. But they've since retraced about half that rise. It's quite a big move. Um, investment grade spreads also fallen back. If we look at government bond markets, um, We've got slight moves up in US, UK yields, but Europe going in the opposite direction, both core and peripheral European yields declining year to date. So if we look at this in isolation, I suppose an environment of gradually rising bond yields, falling credit spreads, strong equity markets sounds indicative of a pretty good economic environment. But actually, we've had concerns over slowing European growth, the US shutdown, Chinese weakness, and we've had the IMF downgrading its economic forecast. So it all feels a bit confused out there. Um, so hopefully Paul's going to be able to make some sense of it all for us. Um, and Paul, think, if we think back to Q4, that was obviously a pretty challenging time for markets, but 2019 started in a more positive foot. How have you weathered that storm? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, December particularly was a tough time for, for macro investors around the world. But I think What's important about that is to take a step back, and certainly when we had the quarterly investment forum in December, when we took a step back and looked, tried to look forward over the next sort of three, six, nine, twelve months about where the economy was going and where markets would go, you know, three things really came out of the the forum for us. The first was that it felt like it was too early to call the end of the global cycle. I think in, uh, economic expectations, growth expectations, had been revised down a lot as we went through the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly in Europe, in part led by trade fears, but in part also led by problems in the auto sector and the industrial sectors. So growth expectations have been revised down a lot. And one of the things that came out of the Quarterly Investment Forum that actually you know, the, some of the leading indicators, particularly in the US, were still pointing uh, to a positive picture. And also we still have some tailwind from the, the fiscal pulse and the fiscal expansion from the US. So those tailwinds, we felt, really should help to push the global economy into this year. That was one thing that came out. The second thing really came out that was that the Fed was going to become more market sensitive. It was going to be more sensitive to what was happening to risk assets. And the last thing the Federal Reserve wants to do is push either the U.S. economy or the global economy into recession. And the last thing they want to do in that sense is really to push risk assets down, be that equities or credit spreads a lot wider. So... And that's, that's, actually, that, that's actually quite a, a bit of a shift from where the Fed view was seen kind of earlier in the year, where it was, this is the course we're 
plotting and we're going to stick to that. Whereas it did feel like the, the statements, and we've heard more recently from Jerome Powell as well, that they are much more cognizant of what's going on in asset markets again, which is more how we were, say, a few years ago. So I think the, the Fed had been on a on quite a sensible course. The US domestic economy was strong. The global economy looked okay beginning of last year. If we go back a year, the European economy was doing well. Growth expectations were, were positive. And as obviously as we went through the year, there were more headwinds came out, whether that was to do with the trade tensions, whether it was to do with uh, political issues within Europe around Italy, be that to do with Brexit, you know, the full, again, the oil price fell later in the year. All these things came together really and in a crescendo of the fourth quarter to cause problems for, for the Fed. And I think the Fed had done a pretty good job of following the path that they'd outlined for raising interest rates and you know, the gradual unwind of the balance sheet. Where the Federal Reserve really came unstuck was in the press conference in the accompanying December rate hike where when Jerome Powell was asked about the balance sheet, basically said, you know, we're on a predetermined path and mm. nothing's going to move us off that. And that completely spooked markets because, as we know, central banks actually do like to be data dependent. Now, interestingly, he's, that spooked the markets. That's one of the things that caused the big risk-off moves. But since then, the Fed and other central bankers have done a lot to try and calm markets. You know, the Fed now are saying that, you know, the, the unwind for the balance sheet was more data dependent. It will be gradual. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal where they're testing the market a bit to see how gradual they need to be. So I think they've learned that they need to be more explicitly market, um, sort of data dependent and cognizant of what's happening to the market, and particularly with regard to that liquidity withdrawal. Okay. And we've had a big shift in interest rate expectations now. You know, we're now pricing, the market is now pricing in no interest rate hikes by the Fed this year and even a small chance of a cut. Um, and, you know, there's still a lot of... Um, time to pass between now and the end of the year to see if that's realised or not. Okay, so I guess so you said those three points, we've had the not near, uh, not at the end of the cycle yet, central banks more sensitive to developments, and what was the third one? And the, the third factor that came out of it was we felt we were, we were getting close to peak uncertainty, and that's slightly different to peak pessimism about the economy, but actually there was a lot of uncertainty out there in the world, be that from the outlook for the global economy, be that from the political um, issues, be that from trade, be that from Brexit, you know, be that was what happened to the auto sector, everything that could have been thrown at the world probably to have uncertainty was out there. And we felt that actually as we went through the year end, as we went through into the first quarter, there was a chance that some of these uncertainties fade. And one of the things clearly that's faded is the uncertainty around, you know, were the Fed going to follow this predetermined yeah. path or not? I said we suspect that as we get through the first quarter, there'll be more clarity around what's happening on trade. We may not like all the outcomes, but we'll probably get more clarity around that. And at some point, we are going to get clarity, one would hope, about what's happening with Brexit. Okay. Um, so I guess against that backdrop, um, what does that mean for the way that you were, you were positioning portfolios? So going through the, the back end of last year, we did increase our allocation to risk. And within our global fixed income portfolios, that essentially meant... Um, increasing our exposure to corporate bonds and high-yield bonds and also to emerging markets. Okay. Um, the emerging market exposure was primarily through the foreign exchange market. Um, and we increased that risk sort of going into the end of December. Arguably, you know, with hindsight, it was a bit too early to do that. Uh, but it's stood us in very good stead as we went into this year. And certainly it's been a big driver of performance as we've gone through, uh, through January. Okay, so I guess if people look at the, the numbers, kind of December will we'll take a bit of a hit from going into uh, risk 
we'll risk on a bit too early, but January we'll see some some good numbers coming through. Yes, that's exactly the case. Um, and I guess so within the said investment grade high yields and emerging um, currencies, uh, were there any regional positions within the, the high yield and investment grade, or was that just kind of broad global exposure? Um, so it was it was pretty broad based, but I'd say that on the credit side, we do prefer still prefer investment grade to high yield. Uh, we did allocate our high yield exposure both to the US and Europe. Uh, but actually, in the last week or so, we have been gradually just taking a little bit of the position off, just top slicing it a bit, purely because markets have moved so far. As you said, you know, credit spreads or high yield spreads have halved the widening that they did last yeah. year. Uh, we're very conscious that that's a relatively big move. I don't think we we see credit spreads, be that investment grade or high yield, going back to the tights that we saw last year. So we still think they've got a bit more room to move, a bit more room to rally um, as the risk sentiment continues to be there, as central banks continue to be positive and underpin markets, but we just don't see them going back to the tights they have been in the past. Okay, and I guess your view also on the economic front, that we're not, uh, we're not yet at the end of the cycle. There's more, there's more runway in front of that also. We generally be supportive of a fairly benign environment for, for defaults, downgrades, things like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. I mean, I think what I would say is that the sentiment around assets and risk assets has shifted. I think, you know, if we go back the past two, three, four, five years, the sentiment seemed to be every time there was a dip in risk assets, be that credit, equities, yeah, and you wanted to buy those risk assets. I do think that as we go through this year, we will probably get, you know, people talking about, are we getting close at the end of the cycle or whatever. So actually maybe the sentiment has shifted to be actually if credit spreads perform well or equities perform well, people might just gradually reduce some of those positions and take some of the profits that they've had for the past few years. And certainly that's one of the things that's factoring in as to why we don't think that credit spreads will go back to the tights that they were sort of uh, last year. Okay. Um, and when you've been taking some of the, the profits from the um, some of the credit trades, where have you been recycling the proceeds? So first thing says where we've taken some of the profits has been in the U.S., Okay. In the U.S. high yield market, where U.S. high yield um, has has outperformed, we've actually been increasing our exposure as we've reduced our credit exposure. We've increased our exposure to uh, Spanish and Portuguese bonds, uh, that, where the spread between uh, Spain and Portugal versus core Europe versus Germany got quite wide. We've had quite a lot of issuance this year, and we felt that that provided a good opportunity to allocate capital there. And the reason is twofold. One is these countries are are still good credits. They're still doing quite well. They come. They were coming cheap to the market and cheap to uh, core Europe or German bonds. But also, should we get any further weakness in European growth dynamic and economic slowdown, the ECB will continue to stand behind the European economy. If that happens, we think that will still be supportive for sovereign debt um, around uh, Spain and Portugal. No, Italia. Uh, Italy, we have is more of a challenge to us. We can argue that both ways. Clearly, spreads are wider there, but we just think on a risk reward basis, it's easier to allocate capital to, to Spain than it is to Italy right here, right now. Okay. And part of that is because Italy is the one uh, sort of peripheral market in Europe that has a bond future there. So actually, if you get a risk-off sentiment to to periphery or to Europe, it's often the bond market that gets solved. Sold. So it has a sort of almost higher beta and a higher risk factor there. So we're just okay. sort of trying to be on the sidelines strictly in part because over the longer term, we do see some headwinds for the Italian economy. 
Okay, that's, that's a neat way in to think about Europe in general. So I guess as an organisation, um, we have a very large European presence. Um, and as asset manager as well, it's also a, a big part of our investment universe. Um, and also I think when we were chatting beforehand, you were saying this is something you get asked about quite a lot actually when you're talking to people internally and clients. So yes, economic growth has weakened. One consequence is that we've had yields falling back again. I guess this may be a bit of a harsh question to ask you, but with 10-year boom yields back at 20 basis points, do European, does European fixed income actually have a place in portfolios anymore? Well, as you said, this is a question we've been asked numerous <laughs> times. Um, clearly, as a bond investor, global bond investor, I'm going to say that bonds do have a place in portfolios. But, um, <laughs> Uh, but with specific regard to, to Germany and the sort of core of Europe, yeah, there are still risks out there. And I think that actually we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that for European investors, where are they going to hide if you get a big risk off event? And they don't necessarily want to hide in two-year bonds at minus 60, sorry, two-year bonds at minus 60 basis points. Um, buying treasuries or U.S. assets isn't very attractive to European investors on a hedged yield, but on a hedged basis when they take out the currency risk. And, you know, we do see that, um, you know, the yield curve in Europe is one of the steepest yield curves out there. It may be a bit technical and not that exciting to non-fixed income investors, but that steep yield curve still means that, you know, uh, bonds at 20 basis points are still a place to hide should people be concerned about a risk-off event. Um, the they also offer some diversification to portfolio. To put it in context, within our global fixed income portfolios, where we have had overweights to sovereign bond markets, we continue to have that in Europe. Okay, so it's... So you need to think on a relative basis, Europe can do okay. And we shouldn't forget that on a cross-currency basis, Europe is still very attractive for Asian investors um, and other parts of the world, probably more attractive than the US is. I guess one of the, the big issues for... The European investors investing in dollar markets has been that um, drag from the, the cost of hedging. I guess the two components, you've got the uh, interest rate differential and you've also had the cross-currency basis. But given that US rate expectations have been coming down recently and the basis has also come in a bit, does that then mean that that's, is that still as much of a hurdle? At, at the margin, it's come down, but it's not. it doesn't seem to be changing investor behaviour or what we're, we expect to happen right now. I think we should also bear in mind that the ECB will continue to be cautious. You know, there is no incentive for any central bank to be the central bank that pushes an economy into recession. And we know from history that ECB tend to be cautious. They want to be cautious. We know there are headwinds out there. Now, clearly, they would like to, at some point, try and get uh, yields back above zero. Yeah. And, uh, but it's going to be a challenge for them to do that. Clearly, there are some effects of what's happening to the banking system on the back of that. But the ECB, the last thing they can afford to do is to sort of remove the accommodative policy too early and risk pushing Europe back into recession. Because it's not clear what they can do should that happen. And they're trying to pull the fiscal policy levers around Europe should Europe go into recession is probably going to be a harder ask for them. But to play devil's advocate to that, so I guess expectations in the market are that European QE is going to continue to be wound down and then there will be rate increases starting to come through. Does the ECB have a credibility problem, actually, if they don't um, proceed on that basis? I personally don't think they've got a credibility problem. I think the important thing is that they don't think they've got a credibility problem. Yep. Um, so they're not going to, to panic and react to that they will continue to do what they say they do, and they will continue to be data-dependent and be cognizant of the risks both ways. 
Um, one could argue that we've had a sort of perfect storm in Europe last year with the falling gro growth expectations with what happened in Italy around the elections, with what happened with Macron uh, and not getting some of his reforms through, with what's happened in the auto sector, the lack of Chinese demand for autos. So we, could, we, could, we do expect that actually growth expectations have been revised down incredibly significantly. There is a chance now that at the margin we see growth expectations come back a bit, but I don't think we expect um, European growth to go off the races. So they just continue to sort of, I think, play it with a straight bat. Okay, so I guess you've got a combination of factors. Then you've got the, the boons, which are serving the diversification benefit and will benefit from any flight to quality things get worse. Um, almost like a barbell with some of the, the peripheral debts where actually spreads are, are quite attractively valued and where you think actually you could um, uh, pick up some decent carry. I think we always try and look at our portfolios holistically. It's one of the sort of central parts of our investment process and philosophy. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to balance out the whole book. We do have some other positions to protect against a more global slowdown led by China, you know, being short currencies like the Korean won and also being short of the margin, the Australian dollar. And those trades there are to try and protect the portfolio should we get an Asian-led slowdown, perhaps caused by no resolution to these this trade spat. Um, I guess final point to turn is to the US market now. I suppose we have, as you mentioned earlier, the market's no longer pricing on any expectations for, for rate hikes this year and even the chance of a, a cut. Um, the, the Fed, as latest kind of dot plot from last year, the median Fed member was still forecasting, I think, two rate hikes this year. Um, our economics team, Keith Wade, are kind of splitting the difference with projection for one. There's obviously a range of different views here. What would have to happen, do you think, for the Fed actually to follow through and for the market to be wrong-footed? Uh, well, it's always good to be put on the spot the day before the Fed meeting, <laughs> so uh, probably be proved wrong uh, within the 36 hours. But um, no, I think the main thing you need to see to the, for the Fed to raise rates as much as the dot plot says is you need to see inflation come through and inflation expectations have fallen. So you probably need to see the oil price uh, turn back up you need to see stability and more confidence in risk assets. And I do think you need some of these headwinds from the global trade, from the trade protection, trade talks, um, Europe to, to abate. Um, I don't, I think the Fed, I've got a challenge here. They don't want to signal that they're going to cut rates. And also they need to signal that actually, should the economy do quite well, you know, the output gap is non-existent. They will continue to at the margin take some of the easy policy away. But I don't think the Fed have any illusions that they want to aggressively tighten policy and take uh, the US economy into a material slowdown or recession. But I do think if they could, they would like to raise rates again later in the year. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Paul. It's been a really interesting discussion. So just in summary, I uh, suppose we added risk to portfolios in December. Um, it actually did hurt us a bit, but we've had a great start to 2019. In very broad terms, it's too early to call the end of the cycle. We've still got support of central banks, um, and we're still comfortable holding modest amounts of risk. Um, but it sounds like we're in more of a, a trading environment than one where we're seeing big moves in either direction. Uh, we're thinking, actually, we should see a bit of a removal of some of the uncertainty this year. And I guess one of the things we haven't discussed, but which we did speak about before the call, was uh, the point you made that, actually, if we see much more of a rise in, in bond yields, that... Um, government bonds may actually start to look attractive in, in portfolios again. I think we don't think we're in a protracted bear market for, for government bonds. You know, if yields were to rise, I think you know, they still provide an attractive diversification element for people, but within a portfolio context. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you very much to everybody for joining us on today's call.
That concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.